0: But uh, today I get to continue our topic. Oh, thanks, guys. We um, get to continue our topic uh, of discussion, which is discipleship. And last week we spoke about how. Uh, sorry, that's really annoying me. Um, uh, we talked about how we can come under the authority of Jesus, and through that we are called to make disciples of all nations. Which doesn't mean that we have to all become overseas missionaries. It simply means that we all, uh, as we go about our lives, uh, get to make disciples of people. Uh, and we spoke about this this little line I, I mentioned that discipleship is more about how far your feet will take you and how wide your arms will reach, and and that truly is something that I'm trying to really bet into my heart, that that's what discipleship is all about, is how far you're willing to go uh, to, to, to meet people and to love people and to disciple people. And that's what I want to do. I do want to go into today a lot more, which is what does discipleship actually look like? And to do that, we are going to go back to the Great Commission, uh, which is in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And this is what it says, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And so I started looking into this. I said, okay, God, help me to understand discipleship as you are describing this. And I, I did a bit of a word study, uh, looked into it a bit more, and I found something really interesting because the King. James Version actually says this, therefore go and teach all nations. That's what the King James Version would say. If you are, uh, um, you can search it up. It says, therefore go and teach all nations. And I'm like, last week I spoke about not how teaching is not the core discipleship and here we have the king james version you know king jimmy he is a standard you know like really no if you read the king james version at least read the new king james version because king james version is like shakespeare on the steroids it's hard to understand i, I read the, the, the esv and uh, niv uh, uh, particularly anyway this is my preference but it says teach all nations and so i was like oh what does this actually mean and i looked into the original greek um, and uh, the word that is translated as teach in um, the King James Version and make disciples in many other uh, versions is the word methetuo. You do not know, have to know how to say it um, methetuo. And then, uh, and the methetuo comes from the root, uh, the root word. And so you know how words have got root words, right? You know, like truthful's root word is truth. It, it's kind of very simple. And so methetuo's root is the word methetes, which is, I'm totally butchering Greek. So there's any Greek people here, uh, but methetes or methetes uh, is disciples. And so the King James Version, whoever was the translator, decided that... Um, how, dis- how these two words link is that you teach people and they become disciples. Okay, but it is better for us to understand that methetuo is not necessarily about teaching. The word itself means to make disciples. Is this disciple-making verb? <laughs> if you will. It is something that we are doing to make disciples. We're not just simply teaching them. In fact, we'll talk about this in a moment, but later on in the Great Commission, remember Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That word teaching is actually a different Greek word that is more commonly used for teaching is didactuo or something like that. You can go look it up. Uh, But so uh, the the King James Version, in my opinion, made a, a bit of an error because that second word, teaching, is teaching, as far as we understand, but the first word is actually a lot more to do with making disciples. And the interesting thing about that word, methetuo, is that it only appears four times in the whole Bible only four times is not a very common word but the word disciples or methetes uh, appears over 270 times very common word anyway so I, i was still like okay so what does it mean and what i felt was that jesus was actually describing disciple making in the great commission he says go therefore make disciples of all nations and then he goes and mentions two different things that we are meant to be doing right And so let's look at them. The first is that he says to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And many of us immediately would think about water baptism. Do you? Okay, cool. I was trying to see if you could, anyone would say anything, but I was like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> but we think water baptism, so it's like, oh yeah, cool, you know, I say, uh, I share the gospel with a person, or, or I invite them to church, and then they, um, they hear the gospel message, and then uh, we water baptize them. Cool, tick, easy. What I want you to understand is that water baptism is a symbol, is a, and a symbol's worth um, only comes when you understand what is behind a symbol. For example, this little bit of metal on my finger is a symbol. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit of a story about this symbol uh, because it, it looks like it's very valuable, right? It's a wedding ring. But this is really, in monetary terms, really cheap. So when, I, uh, when we were getting married and, and I was looking for a wedding ring, I found this online site that uh, was selling these cool rings. I don't even remember what material it was. Um, but it said it's unbreakable, and, and it was black. And I was like, oh, that's cool, you know, something not very standard. And so I ordered it, got it, and it was the wrong size. And I found out that you can't just resize these things. You actually have to completely recast them. And so I ordered another one that I thought would be the right size. This is just me thinking about jewelry, right? So if you ever want me to buy you jewelry, I'll get it wrong. Uh, it, got, it, it was the wrong size again, and I did not have time to order yet another one. And so I wore that one for about three months and then uh, Beck and I were on the Gold Coast and uh, we uh, were just walking around and saw this kiosk um, that was selling like cheap jewellery and I looked at it and I was like, oh look, that's a nice one and picked it up for about 20 bucks. Um, so if you're talking about the value of this symbol, it's not in its monetary value. My marriage is not worth $20 to me. And the thing about this is that it's also non-transferable. So if I happen to give this to Reese and Reese puts it on his finger, is he married to Beck? <laughs> no, right? Why? Because that symbol means something to me, yeah, very good. but that symbol can mean something to someone else. And so what we need to understand about symbols is what they are trying to represent. This represents a deeply important, valuable covenant relationship that I have with my wife. And so when we look at water baptism, we have to be really careful because we run the risk of making it a lot less valuable than it truly is. When we just look at it, oh, oh that's a, you use a, a raised garden bed and you topped it up with water that comes from who knows where, and you dunk me in this for like one second, and then what? You give me a certificate. What is this certificate with? At least we laminate them, okay? So it kind of looks nice, but what is it, does it mean? And uh, many of you know that uh, the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, and the word baptizo means to immerse, and therefore we practice this immersion practice. Uh, but as I was doing some study, I found out that the word baptizo in the Greek is actually used quite regularly uh, to talk about dying of materials, And so when you get a a cloth, uh, you get a material, and you want to change its color, you baptize it. You you baptize it in this vat so that when it comes out, it looks completely different. And this is supposed to represent a permanent process. You know, when I dip it into the color red, it comes out and it looks red. And I thought that that was such an important visual, (coughs) excuse me, a picture for us to hold as a symbol for water baptism. See, water baptism, when Jesus is saying baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus isn't just simply saying dunk people in water. He isn't just saying to immerse them in water as quickly as you can uh, in my name and get over with it. Because I reckon it's sometimes how we do things. No, the, the point of the baptism ceremony, if you will, is to represent the life change that the person has undergone. If the person is not undergoing change or is not willing to continue to undergo change, then the symbol is meaningless. If I wear this ring and I cheat on Beck, this ring actually becomes completely meaningless. Why? Because I am not upholding what is meant to symbolize, which is a committed covenantal relationship with my wife. So in the same way when we are saying to people that we want you to be baptized is not just going through an event it is symbolizing the change that this person is meant to have gone through and continue to go through. Let's read this in uh, Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. It says this, what shall we say then shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have who have died to sin, how we live in it any longer or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into christ jesus were baptized into his death we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father we too may live a new life when we bapt when we sorry when we disciple a person the first thing that jesus is saying is that this is a process of transformation This is a commitment to transformation that the person has to agree to. You are saying that I am dead to my old life and I'm alive in Christ. The life that I now live no longer belongs to me, it belongs to Christ and so I'm gonna live in that way. So discipleship is not just simply about giving a person uh, uh, the chance to uh, say the sinner's prayer and then to dunk them in water and say, Sign you delivered, I'll see you in heaven, see you later. No, 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 no. It is about saying to the person, walking with the person and saying, Your life now is necessarily going to look different because of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing. For those of you who have come into Christianity and you have heard the message and you say, I want Jesus' love and I want to invite Him into my life, and then the person said, very easy, let's say the sinner's prayer, done and dusted. That person was doing you a disservice because baptism is not an event, it's a symbol of a process and a commitment that you are now going to live under. But I love what Paul is saying, you are dead to sin, but now you are alive with a new life that Christ has given to you. You have chosen to die to sin because you realize that that old life is not good enough for you. You are saying, I want the life that Christ has for me, which brings me to the second thing that Jesus says. He says, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You know, sometimes they gloss over this. Does anyone, when you hear Jesus say stuff like, I command you, I think in our Western grace context, you're like, I command you with grace, right? And it's like, Maybe it's more like a suggestion, it's not like a, go do this, yes sir. We don't think like that. It's it's kind of scary for us sometimes to think that Jesus commands us. But the truth is, Jesus has commanded us. And then He tells us that part of discipleship is to go and teach people to obey His commands and i think we miss out the value of obeying jesus's commands when we don't understand that the whole point is that we are learning to live in the life that christ has given to us what are we trying to teach people we're not trying to teach people how to be polite we're not trying to teach people how to be nice we're teaching people how to live that's what this is all about beck and i were having a conversation this week and we we're talking about you know the cultures that we grew up in and and the moral code that was passed to us through uh for beck in the catholic church for me uh, growing up in a methodist church and and, and we we're talking about that and i realized that when my early days i was being taught about jesus commands quite often it was about being polite and nice That was actually what it was all about, and I remember being an absolute rat bag uh, uh, to my Sunday school teachers sometimes because I knew that they did not have the answer, and so I would ask them, so miss, why are we not allowed to swear? And then they would get into the Bible like, oh, oh, what does it say? What does it say you're not allowed to swear? And they would say, oh, 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 this is not quite right because the Bible says do not swear an oath that you're not going to keep. And I was like, well, what if I want to keep it? You know, if I want to swear at someone, I want to curse someone, and I actually mean it, does that mean I can say it? And then the teacher's like, oh, no, 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 you say, oh, no, You, you need to make sure that your yes is yes and your no is no, and they're trying to pull out all these Bible verses. And none of them ever told me about how the principle in God's kingdom is generosity with my words about encouragement, how that is what Jesus is saying to us, that we need to love our neighbor, that these words, uh, uh, they degrade, these words, they don't build anything. And no one, no one told me that because they were trying to find the do's and do nots in the Bible rather than the principles of life that Christ has given to us. And so when we are teaching people, we are teaching them about the life that they have in Christ that they now get to live. That is the whole process. And so there we have it. we got teaching for transformation. That's what Jesus teaches us, right? That's what the Great Commission says. But as I look deeper into this, there was something that was a little bit concerning to me. And someone brought this to my attention. It's kind of a bit... You might not like this because this whole series is about discipleship, but the word discipleship, like I mentioned, or make disciples, methetuo, appears only four times in the Bible, and the last time is at the end of Acts, and it wasn't even a command. The only time that word was used as a command is in Jesus' Great Commission. Every other time, it just simply describes what people were doing in a certain location. So Paul doesn't use the word make disciples, and then on top of that, the word "disciples," which I mentioned appears over 200 around 270 times, does not appear after the book of Acts as well. Paul does not use the word "disciples. And so, is discipleship really that important? Is it truly that impactful for us? And I was sitting with this and I was thinking about it, and I was doing my research, and I realized that here's the disconnect. The word disciple and making disciples is a very Hebrew concept. It is specific. When when you think about it in a Hebrew context, it actually is a lot richer. Let me show you because I learned this a little while ago. Jesus was called a rabbi. You guys remember that in the Bible? Uh, uh, sometimes it's translated teacher. That his disciples or even some other people will come to him and say, a rabbi or teacher. Teach me. And so that's where I think the Kim James Version, a lot of different versions use the word teach a lot because Jesus was a teacher. That was his title, occupation, if you will. But how rabbis taught disciples was vastly different from our Western context today. Rabbis did not have classrooms, they did not have a blackboard and a bunch of chairs and tables and say, this is the stuff, now do your homework. It wasn't an intellectual pursuit. It was a lifestyle pursuit. And so the rabbi would actually say to someone, Hey, follow me. And then they would follow him, literally follow him. When we see Jesus calling the 12 disciples and say, Follow me, leave your homes, leave your families, and literally live with me for the next uh, while while I teach and train you and disciple you. That wasn't just Jesus. That was Hebrew culture. Rabbis were given the authority and they were given the responsibility of creating disciples. And so these disciples would follow Jesus, or the 12 of them would follow Jesus. And this is the interesting thing about Hebrew culture that we don't know about because it's not written in the Bible, but according to Hebrew, uh, sorry, according to rabbinical culture, this is what used to happen. All right, so so Reese, can I get you to stand up? I need this to be as visual. So imagine that you are Jesus. It's not hard to imagine with his beard and uh, his nice olive skin. But imagine that Jesus is the rabbi and Jesus is walking in that direction. Just walk. Yeah. A disciple will literally be doing this. And in, um, back in those days, the roads were completely made of dirt. Thanks so much, Reese. So disciples would literally fight. To be the one closest to the rabbi. And it was considered an honor because they used to wear those more tunic kind of clothing. It was considered an honor to have your tunic covered in the sand of the rabbi. It was considered an honor to be the closest to the rabbi, even getting his dirt. All right? This is the kind of thing, and I, I hope that you kind of noticed that I tried to imitate Reese's walk as well, because that's literally what the disciples would be doing. They would be learning his um, rabbis, and I use the word he because back then all rabbis were male and all disciples were male. That's just the culture of that day and age. And they would literally learn the mannerisms, the oddities of their rabbi. They would be observing And it was considered a high compliment when in the absence of the rabbi, someone went, you must be that rabbi's disciple because you walk like him, because you talk like him, because you say the things that he would say. A disciple literally imitates the rabbi. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, you go make disciples, he was literally saying, do what I used to do for you there's this closeness, there's this life that is being shared. You're not going to a classroom. The classroom is life itself. You follow, you practice, you ask questions as you go about your journeys, learning about how your rabbi thinks and acts and decides on certain things. That was how making disciples were done. But that was a Hebrew culture. And so when Paul started to bring the gospel beyond uh, 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 Jerusalem and beyond uh, the Israelite community, and he went to the Greeks, the Greeks had no idea how to disciple the way that Jesus did. It wasn't in their culture. They didn't have uh, people saying, follow me, and people start following and walking around and imitating. That was a Hebrew, a rabbinical culture. And so Paul needed to find another metaphor to help people understand what discipleship was all about. And this is the metaphor that I think that he was using most. He was using the metaphor of a parent. Let me read this to you. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14 to 16, he says this, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my... Dear children. Sorry, I thought it was up there. There you go. It's in bold. So if you want to read along to kind of get it into your system, please do so. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my... Dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. The rabbi asked his disciples to imitate him. The father, in Paul's language, asked his children to imitate him. Can you see how this could be linked and this is what Paul was writing about as a metaphor. He says it's not about having people that just guard you and and, and just look after you for a little while. You want a father. And you don't have many fathers. And I think a part of that is that that was Paul's uh, uh, heart. He was like, we need to raise up more fathers in the faith. But I want to read you another one so that you know that he's not just talking about fathers. He's also talking about mothers. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7b to 12. He says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Pause. Why does he use the word nursing mother? A nursing mother... Um, for those who are too young and don't know, I think everyone should know, is that you are a mom who is breastfeeding your child. I want you to see that image there, just as a breastfeeding mother cares for the child. That means that the child is young. That means that the child can't contribute to life. In fact, the child is a burden. The child takes up resources, time, energy, effort. Why does a mom do it? Not because there's a kickback, not because the child is going to start cleaning the table. No, the child's going to make a mess off the table. Why does a mum do it? Because she loves and cares. Because. She loves and cares because she brings this child into her family because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. For you know that we dealt with you, with each of you as a father deals with own, his own children by smacking them and telling them that they are useless bums. No, by encouraging them, comforting them, urging them to live lives worthy of God who calls you into His kingdom and glory. These are powerful words. And I think when I was growing up, I thought that those were Paul words. If you want to be Paul the Apostle, that's what you do. If you want to be a super minister for God, that's what you do. But the more I read scriptures, the more I see that these are examples. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You imitate my love for you. For other people. You imitate how much I care for you. You imitate my commitment to you. You imitate all that I do. So you are discipling as I have discipled. And so if I disciple like a parent, you disciple like a parent. This is scriptural, and this is quite scary because we are meant to be parenting through our discipleship. And this is something that beck and i are diving into more as literal parents that we are sam's primary disciples and we actually have to think about what are we doing how are we introducing him to the truth of god how are we raising him in the ways of god and and actually having him 24 7 is is it makes it sound like oh you got so much more time it's a lot easier it's also a lot harder because as a parent to disciple you have to be deliberate i didn't know that I thought a discipleship would just flow from the abundance of my heart maybe my heart is a little bit small and i'm still working on it but gosh sometimes i don't want to disciple my son i don't want to be a role model for my son i was listening to the radio just this week and it was interesting there was a presenter that was talking to a principal of a school and they were talking about um, how to get kids into the car uh, on time and, and to get places on time and and i thought it was quite funny because i recently had another conversation with a friend who recently had their third child and and i said hey bro how's it going like how's it being a dad a third time and he said dude going out worst thing ever <laughs> that's all he said i'm like it's like yeah, you know it, it's like i long for the days that i can just say Oh, we want to go out for lunch? Sure, let's go. Start the car and off you go. No, now it's like, come on, kids. Yes, we are going. And so I thought it's quite funny because I had these two conversations. I had that conversation and I was listening to this interview. And this principal actually made a very interesting comment. He said, "Um, you know, one of the things to do is to watch what you do before you get ready to go out. Because if you tell your kids, hey kids, we're going to go out, and then you start pottering around the house, doing stuff, you know, doing some dishes, you know, maybe putting the wash, uh, the wash on just so that when you come back, it's all ready to go, or just cleaning up a little bit, etc., He said, guess what? The kids will see that when mum says it's time to go out, it's cue for potter around and do stuff. As an adult, you potter around and you do constructive stuff. As a kid, what constructive stuff do they do? Play they are learning through play praise the lord but you know they are still playing and so when you see the kid taking another five ten minutes and say yeah it's time to go and you see them make a beeline for the games room it's because they see you hey kids we're going to be going and then they start pottering i don't have this problem because when i say let's go let's go but beck literally when i heard that i was like you need to change that. My son is going to get into the car when I say he's getting into the car. You are changing the way that you live because you are a role model for our son. It's kind of funny, but it's true. Discipleship it's about seeing life transformation. It's about teaching. But what is it that the context, the foundation of it in the Bible is intimately relational. That's why I lived. we're going to call it relational discipleship because we want to make a difference. We want to make you understand that, 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 that uh, as a parent, we are sharing life. I'm not just teaching you what I know. I'm living out what I know in a way that you can understand and then live out. You know, many of you, all of you, I think, know that, that Sam is adopted, and so he does not have my DNA, and Sam does not have my blood, And sometimes people talk to us as though we need to be worried about how Sam's going to turn out. You don't know his dad and you don't know what he's like. Aren't you scared about what Sam's going to be like? I said no, because he does not have my DNA, he doesn't have my blood, but he has my life. Sam is with me and I give him my life. And because I have given him my life, I know he's going to turn out more like me than anyone else in the world. He's going to have my mannerisms. He's going to have my quirks. He's going to have my sense of humor. For better or worse, that's what he's going to have because that's what he's going to experience because my life has been given to him. When we disciple, it's easier to be in the classroom. It's easier to give a bit of head knowledge and then close the books and say, I've done my part. But the discipleship in the Bible is so much deeper. Discipleship in the Bible requires the commitment of a parent. I want this just to sit with you for a moment. Because I think that the Western church in particular really needs to recapture this. Who has invited you into their life before? Who has discipled you in a way that shows you how life works? See, as I've done my research and I'm doing, looking into lots of different areas, one of the things that I learned recently is that most of us can't learn in fact none of us learn how to regulate emotions in the absence of another person every single one of us has learned our emotional regulation from someone else our emotional regulation is not natural to us but is natural to the environment we came from god has created us to learn best through imitation so who has deliberately said i'm going to try to be an example for you imitate me as i imitate christ i used to freak out at that phrase because it made me feel like i needed to be perfect before i can disciple anyone else but i don't think that is the thrust of the bible the thrust of the bible is like as i make mistakes as a disciple i say hey I get it wrong too but thank god for grace thank god that i don't have to be perfect because christ was perfect but i'm also trying to grab a hold of this new life that christ has given to me how many of you have been in a church for a long time have discipled in a way that has opened your heart and your life to others not just say, come to this cause or come to that cause, but actually say, hey, let's share life. Let's do life. Follow me as I follow Christ. As scary as these words are, they are biblical. As intense and as much commitment as this will require, is biblical. As intense In this, today's world and context, the commitment of marriages in a Christian context, we still live according to that standard because it's biblical. So why don't we listen to the standard of discipleship that is set in the Bible? I don't mean this to be degrading of anyone or any other church or what you've been taught and learned, but I'm saying this because God put this on my heart. You know, discipleship is still being discussed across the, the Christian body, as it has been for millennia. And I don't think we've settled on this is discipleship, because the Bible doesn't say it that way. But if you're a part of Lift, I want you to know that discipleship here will be intimately relational. This freaks some of you out, and you want to leave the church because you don't want anyone digging around your closet. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying do life together and see what comes out. It freaks some of you out because you're like, wow, that's a really high standard. Well, Christ has got high standards for us because He's got a better life than anything that this world has to offer. So why do we subscribe to lousy, pointless practices when the Bible shows us practices that will truly enable us to live the life that Christ has for us? That is the thrust of the message that I want to leave with you. So this morning, if you're in a place and you're considering all of these words. Understand that what Christ has done on the cross for you isn't just an intellectual pursuit. Why Christ has asked us to disciple and to be relational about it is because He is a relational God. He's not a God that's just waiting to smite you because of your sin. He's a God who is inviting you into the new life that He's providing for you, and a new life where He gets to enjoy your company. (laughs) You know, that should blow our minds. Why we should disciple relationally is because we are supposed to show people what Christ is doing for us. (laughs) When The Bible says that He puts the lonely in families. When the Bible says that He has adopted us as sons and daughters, it's not just an intellectual pursuit, our God is intimately relational and wants to have a relationship with us. And so this morning, I just want to lead anyone into a sinner's prayer, not because the sinner's prayer makes you any better, but it make, we just call it a sinner's prayer because it's an invitation to say, God, I want this relationship. So if I can get everyone just to close your eyes and to bow your head and to say this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I know that I have sinned. And I know I've fallen short but I want to be in relationship with you. I want the life that you have given to me. So I invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Saviour. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift church Perth. That will give you all the up to date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.